I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is TC Daily, the technology show brought to you by Tech Central. If you haven't subscribed yet, do so at youtube.com slash techcentral. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to our daily newsletter? That's techcentral.co.za slash newsletter, and you'll receive that every morning at 5 a.m. in your inbox. Now, very pleased to welcome on the show today, Russell Southwood. Uh, Russell I can, I'm certainly, I think, Russell, it would be fair to call you a veteran of <laughs> many years, <laughs> telecoms yeah. and ICT yeah. on the African continent. You probably know more about the development of telecoms on this continent mm. than just about anybody else. So it's really great to have you in the studio. And thank you so much for making the time. Pleasure to be here. Russell, the reason I'm t- we're talking to you today is that you have a book out. I do um, indeed. Which I haven't finished reading yet, but yeah. is very, very interesting so far, and I certainly intend finishing reading it. Uh, the book is called Africa 2.0, Inside a Continent's Communications Revolution. And uh, this really goes back over the last 30, 35 years, looking back at how uh, communications in Africa has developed, and it has changed completely, right? Uh, when you started in mm. this field, which was when exactly? 2000. Around 2000, so okay. out of that 35-year space, yeah. uh, 20 I've actually been here for, yeah, and yeah. the prehistory is in those previous 15 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now, many in the industry know you for your Balancing Act weekly newsletter, which is very well read and uh, digested, uh, which uh, you've been running for more than two decades now. Mm. Uh, how did you get into the space? And uh, you, I mean, you're originally from the UK. Where did your interest in Africa I come from? I was from the UK, and I read an article in Wired Mar- Magazine by John Perry Barlow, yeah. who set up the Electronic Frontiers Foundation. Probably in one of these, yeah, somewhere indeed, actually. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, he came to Africa to look at the internet. Mm. And he was very Californian, and sort of it seemed like 50% of it was kind of f- absolutely fascinating, and 50% was sort of, way, yeah. you know. And it got me interested. So I came down and I visited four countries. And before I went, everybody said, oh, there's nothing there, you know, kind of, I don't know why you're doing this. And there was, there was networks and there was people, you know, using phones and all the rest of it. Um, and it could only get better. Mm-hmm. So I did a little newsletter, and out of that little newsletter, people started sending me stuff. Mm-hmm. A guy from Madagascar sent me 2,000 words on the state of the Amazing. internet in Madagascar. Mm-hmm. And it sort of went from there. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a very small community in those days, whereas nowadays you know, there, are, there are you know, literally you know, tens and hundreds of people yeah. interested in this area. So, and that's, that, that's a sign of success, I think, for the continent. Right. And it's a pleasure to see that there are so many people you know, are now interested in so, it. So it was originally an article by John Perry Barlow that just sparked your fascination Absolutely. with the continent. What were you doing before this? Before that, I, I was working in the UK as a, as a management consultant in the sort of creative industries okay. arts area. Right. And I just got kind of bored with doing the same thing over and over again. And I got to the point where I knew the answers to the questions before the questions had been asked. Uh-huh. And that's very bad news. You mm. know? So I wanted something that was going to challenge me. Yeah. And, um, Let's just say working in Africa is always a good challenge. Yeah, yeah. Now, I like in the introduction to your book, you talk about, and it is a, a figure, that, uh, 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 a quote that's been used quite quite a lot by industry leaders. And I, mm. think, I think I remember Jay Naidu, who was a communica- one of the early communications yeah. ministers in South Africa, uh, could have been, been, been his predecessor, Pallor Jordan, the first mm. communications minister under the ANC, uh, who said that uh, there were more phone lines in Manhattan than in the entirety of Africa in the late 1980s. Boy, things have changed, haven't they? They have. I tried to find the source for that, 
and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. So all I, all I said at the beginning of the book is, you know, this, this was out there, yeah. you know. And, yeah, now you have a situation in which um, large parts of the billion-plus people on the continent now have access to voice, mm-hmm. and increasingly people have access to internet. But what is interesting is it has been a kind of long arc of change yeah. because voice led on to mobile internet, led on to mobile money, led on to startups. Mm. So the road just kept getting wider and wider. And it continues. And it continues to get wider. And in a way, we're at the end of the beginning. We're not, yeah. you know, and when people look back, they will say, this is the point that the continent changed. Yeah. You and I are both old enough to remember what the 1980s were like. And here in South Africa, there was still apartheid. And, you know, kind of much has changed since then. And in many ways, South Africa was one of the key places um, in terms of lighting the fuse for that particular change. Because by granting the licenses for mobile operators, it may not have been done very well here. But what it did was international investors began to say, well, if we can go into South Africa, we can go to other places. And so both MTN and Vodacom spread out across the continent and particularly MTN going to Nigeria, which was really a big thing. And if you look at the impact of what has happened in Nigeria with MTN, you know, when it started, it was a few hundred people of which 80 were South Africans. Mm. Now there are 19,000 people. And I would be very surprised if there were that many expats Mm. there. And with that, it has brought skills, a completely different range of skills And so the key investment areas are mining and oil and all that, number one, telecoms, number two. But telecoms brings with it skills that you don't get when you dig stuff out of the ground, because actually mining is largely digging stuff out of the ground and a much smaller level of um, management, if you will. Whereas actually, you know, the skills that are spread across the continent through the process of doing telecoms and internet, you know, that skill upskilling now, we complain about the levels of skills, but actually, if you think back, there were hardly any. Mm. There are now incredible numbers of people who have different skills, whether it's technical, like engineering and so on and so forth, or whether it's marketing or whether, you know, on and on you go. You, you spoke about the impact of, of uh, private sector investment and, mm. and Vodacom and MTN and their expansion across the continent, and there are were, there were other big players as well. But mobile actually started, and uh, I think many people will be surprised by this, but mobile in Africa actually started in the then Zaire, which yeah. is today the Democratic Republic of the Congo, under the dictatorship of Mobutu Sese Seko. How did that come about? Well, it was a very strange thing. There was a, a Rwandan called Miko Ruatiri, and yes. he joined up with a guy called Joe Gatt. And Joe Gatt, who is still alive, um, had been um, the station manager for one of the airlines. He had arrange various leasing deals for aircraft for um, Mobutu, and therefore was close to him. And Mobutu went to the States, so they arranged for these very big sort of half-brick mobile phones to be available to them in the States. And they got the go-ahead after a year, and they gave these phones to all the ministers, and the ministers never paid anything. (laughs) So you had a kind of problem, because Mm -hmm. it was still the old Africa. Right. Um, they got a license, but actually the license didn't really protect them because it was a kind of sort of nod and a wink. And you mm-hmm. know, if they tried to cut people off, the soldiers would come around and tell them, you know. <laughs> you know. And, you know, one of, one of their operations managers was very badly beaten up and, you know, mm. left. And 
Yeah, quite sort of lawless, really. Mm. and um, Kind of what you'd expect under Babu. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But that, in parallel, happened with um, uh, Econet Strive Mas uh, Masiwa, yeah. who was fighting his way through the courts against Mugabe, the Mugabe government in Zimbabwe, and he eventually got to the other side of that. And he, you know, got a license, and then the South African licenses followed after that, and that was just the beginning of the process. Yeah. But... Actually, that alone, liberalization alone, wouldn't have done it. In the early days, the, the mobile operators were innovators mm -hmm. in a way that they probably have ceased to be as, as good at as they were then. And MTN did prepaid calling in Uganda, mm -hmm. and what had been a really rather small market was just Celtel, suddenly started burgeoning. Because actually this was the way that you could get people with very little money to be able to buy phone units. Yes. And yeah, before you knew it, you know, there were people, I don't know if you remember, there used to be guys would stand on the side of the road with these sort of cars, SIM cards kind of uh, <laughs> arrayed down their front. And huge sums of money went directly to the street level. Now, of course, there are dealerships and, yeah. and all so on and so forth. But, you know, it really made a change because those guys had something to sell. And it was like Coca-Cola. It was, it was a... Prepaid changed the model and, exactly. and, and sparked this explosion of communication exactly, across, yeah. across the continent. A lot of people assume it was invented here in South Africa. A lot of South Africans, I think, think it was invented by either MTN or Vodacom or both around the same time and yeah. implemented here first. But you say it wasn't. It was implemented elsewhere in Africa first. I think it was implemented by MTN here in South Africa and in, and in Uganda. And in Uganda. And okay. in Uganda. So, um, you know, that was, that was the start of it. Yeah. And, and other things happened. Like, originally, people were sold minutes and then they were sold seconds. Mm -hmm. And then the cost of buying the SIM card came down to almost nothing, to mm -hmm. a trivial sum. And so, you know, and, and the thirst that there was for communications in Congo Brazzaville when Celtel opened its office there, mm -hmm. the, the office was absolutely mobbed to such an extent that the police had to be called because mm -hmm. so many people wanted a phone. <laughs> and every business target that people set was broken, you know, within yeah. months rather than within the years that they imagined it would take to get there. You must have traveled quite extensively in Africa as well. You must have met some really, really interesting people. Uh, in your 20, 25 years uh, of uh, running Balancing Act and, and, and talking to people, industry yeah. players and traveling in the, in the continent, what are, the, what are some of the key moments that have really stood out for you? Um, it's funny. They're, they're often quite trivial and quite sort of life-related. When I started, I, you know, when you travel into a country, you get yourself a driver, basically, and the driver would always, you know, you'd say, oh, I want to go here, and the driver would ring a friend of his, and the friend would say, yeah, well, that's sort of down here, or if you're in Ghana, they say it's the you know, third on the left path of the flower cellar. <laughs> and then suddenly it was possible to get a modem and have Google on your iPad be telling the driver, no, it's left here, you know, and so on and so forth, because Google had mapped all this. And then I arrived in Kenya, and I can't remember which year it was, it was probably 2012, and, then, and I said to the driver, I want to go here, and he said, oh, give me a moment, I'm going to look on Google Maps. And so suddenly you could see this process mm. working its way through, at quite a sort of seemingly trivial level, but mm. actually made an enormous amount of difference mm. in, in, in many ways. Mm. And some of the people you've met over these years, uh, anyone who's really stood out for you? Ah, there's so many. Mm. Uh, it's difficult, difficult. Sta do you prefer talking to startups or to the big telcos or who, 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 who really interests you? I think it's the people who are trying to make changes. And in the early days, the, the mobile operators 
were very interesting. Mm. So people like Terry Rhodes and and um, people like that from Celtel were very interesting because actually it was it was um, it, it was a it, it was a new business and there was a kind of energy and they were you know always kind of moving just sort of one step ahead of where they should be. Um, but over the years, you know, you deal with mobile operators and you talk to people about mobile operators now and it's quite bureaucratic. Mm. There's quite a lot of process. and You can't do things quickly. So it's quite interesting, I suppose, you know, kind of MTN has taken IOBA and set it up, which is its social platform, and set it up as a separate entity. Mm. Why have they done that? Because it's actually impossible, really, to get a decision out of a mobile operator, you know, in they're big corporates. Time, they're big corporates, mm. and they are the new incumbents. They mm. are the they are the guys who control. And increasingly, there is um, less and less competition in many markets. You know, there's a consolidation going on. Several operators have left the continent, and you know, it's this reduces the amount of competition. And so, I think there's a very some very real issues there in terms yeah. of what happens in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, a lot of uh, what we've seen in Africa has been driven by the private sector and private sector investment. In your view, uh, and certainly in the South African context, there was probably a lot of resistance to the private sector being involved in the economy. We saw, we saw uh, uh, at one stage the Director General even trying to shut down the arrival of undersea cables to South African yeah. shores. Um, do, you, do you think the, the communications revolution that we've seen in Africa uh, has happened in spite of governments and politicians? Or do you think they've come around and have actually helped build the ecosystem? It's, it's a mixed picture, but actually you would have to say that um, before the private sector got involved, you were in a situation where you know, some of these state telcos had an 80-year waiting list to get a fixed line. <laughs> you know, and, and so you were then in a situation where you could go into a shop 15, 20 minutes later, come out with a phone. Mm. So you know, there was a, a complete difference. And the governments didn't have the investment, they didn't have the expertise, and that's what the private sector bought. And, you know, very, very quickly it was able to invest and invest in countries, even countries that were in civil war, places like Liberia, mm. Sierra Leone, DRC, all those places, Somalia, actually almost build around mm. civil conflict and get things going. Mm. And it made a huge difference. I mean, it's hard to remember the days before the mobile phone, you know, you, you try and arrange to meet somebody in a bar, you know, it was a bit of a random chance that you actually managed to meet them. Yeah. So, you know, it made a big, big difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, we've, we've seen the impact of mobile and the private mm. sector in mobile and, and creating this communications revolution in Africa. But in fixed lines, we kind of, we left behind. We, we never, Africa never really had a mm. fixed line infrastructure, which is why there were more phone lines in Manhattan and on the entire mm. continent. But even that seems to be changing now, Russell. Um, in South Africa, there's a lot of fiber deployment happening. It's being yeah. driven by the private sector. We had the CEO of Vumatel in here a week or two back who said yeah. they are going to deploy fiber to shacks uh, yes. at less than 100 rand a month for uncapped internet. Uh, do you think that um, what we've seen in mobile is going to be replicated in fixed and in fixed broadband? I think it will happen much more slowly. I think one, yeah. one of the points of the book is that it's perfectly possible to launch a technology every three months. But actually, uh, to use the academic phrase, people need to appropriate a technology translation. It means it has to become part of their lives. Yeah. And that is a much longer process. And if you look at all the big changes that have occurred, they've all taken something like five to ten years. And people tend to think, you know, oh, we, we roll it out and, you know, it, huge take up and all the rest of it. And these things were actually quite hard work, you yeah. know. So when mobile money was launched outside of 
Kenya, it, you needed experiential marketing to explain to people how to use it. You could sign up lots of people, but they didn't end up using it. And so to explain what it was and to get them comfortable with using it is a much longer process. And mm -hmm. that's true of what you're now talking about, which is fibers of the home. I think that um, the COVID-19 lockdowns in many African countries was like a test drill. Mm -hmm. You had to work from home. Your kids had to be educated at home. I mean, if you had the money, then actually you then began to say to yourself, A, the internet is rather important, and B, you know, we need to do certain things in order to get it. So you started using Zoom, Teams, you know, on mm. and on you go, and all of those things. And you began in wanting to entertain yourself to have a much better connection. So start getting fibers of the home for things like Netflix, for things like Amazon, Showmax, all of those kinds of things, all of the things that are layered over the infrastructure. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I want to talk about some of the things that mobile has enabled in Africa. Um, uh, we spoke about how prepaid um, mm. was sort of the catalyst for this explosion. Um, but there were a whole lot of services that then got built on top of mobile and it was rolled out. You spoke about Google Maps, for example, yeah. big social media companies, uh, all those sort of services. But there are other things that people don't talk about that often, which you mentioned in your book. Radio. Suddenly you had this device in your pocket yes. with an FM receiver in it. Yes. Um, and you can't sell... Uh, cell phone on this continent if it doesn't have that FM receiver in yeah. it because no one will buy it. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, it must have had a big impact on broadcasting. It did in two ways. I mean, one, I, there's, a, there's somebody in the book who describes the, um, the mobile as the remote for the younger generation. And actually, you know, you access music streaming, you access mm. videos, Nollywood, all of those kinds of things. Suddenly you have this device. It may not have a great screen. I remember a Nollywood director saying to me, who would watch a Nollywood movie on it? Well, people do. They watch stuff on their phone because yep. it's there. I think the, 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 the other thing is, is actually that um, all of this stuff that is layered on top is actually what the point of having the phone was. Because actually SMS wasn't, I mean, yes, it was, it was helpful to have it, mm. but actually it's not terribly easy to con convey very much in that short number of characters. So all of these services that go on top actually are um, something that you know, people want. And the speed with which Uber took off in Kenya was kind of interesting. Mm. Quite an international, Nairobi in particular, quite an international city in some ways. And so... You know, and with the arrival of internet, you have not the first startups because there was always stuff before. You know, there was Mark Shuttleworth and there was Africa sure. Online and stuff like that. But from about 2010 onwards, the internet was the beginning of um, the startup boom. And the startup boom really was about, you know, we now have internet, so there are a series of things we can do. I think we need to step back, though, from that sort of wave of growth and, and emphasize that those that use Internet in the main have education and income mm -hmm. or some combination of that. And actually, you still have quite large numbers of people who are illiterate and they are either illiterate because they don't read or write because mm -hmm. the education levels aren't, you know, education provision is not as good as it ought to be. Or they're functionally illiterate, so they, they don't know how to, you know, do certain kinds of things. Or they're tech illiterate. And that means that you have a kind of large part of the market which currently isn't accessible. And then you, the other divide you have is that women are less likely than men to use the mobile internet. And that's things like the patriarchy and, and you know, the way relations are structured between the genders. 
And so there's, again, a whole other range of people. Now, as we move forward and education increasingly gets better and those things are addressed, then hopefully the market will get larger and larger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and access to communication will help because yeah. if you've got access to the internet, you've got access to education, Absolutely. Et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. So it is both the, 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 the solution and, and the bridge. Russell, how significant was the development of, of mobile money? I mean, it's been a, uh, uh, something that was really mushroomed on the African continent specifically. Yes. In fact, it was invented, in effect, by Safaricom through Vodafone. Yes. Um, just give me an idea of the impact that that's had, because we don't probably feel it's it as much. It's an interesting story. I'll do the story very, very quickly. Yes. Through a constellation of circumstances, DFID, which is the British Development Agency, put money into pilot with um, Safaricom mm -hmm. and out of that pilot which was originally intended for, for microcredit they noticed in real time as they watched people transacting on the platform that actually they'd worked out that they could send each other money mm -hmm. so it wasn't the original idea for it <laughs> and actually what you've got is this you know explosion but it seems such an obvious thing but there was a, previously, there was a, a, a thing that's, that was invented by Celtel called CellPay, which was mm. very similar. Yep. The difficulty was that people didn't trust it. So they eventually had to sort of turn it into a kind of corporate money deliverer. And so you can see that it takes time for people to, to have the trust, mm. to change their habits and so on and so forth. But what it's done is it meant that you can send money um, uh, from one person to another. It's... Little understood, though, and it's quite paradoxical. It's a cash-in, cash-out system in the main. The majority of A, the majority of people still use cash. B, it's a cash-in, cash-out system. If I send money to somebody in the rural area, they can't use a digital currency. Mm. There's nobody there accepts it yet. So, actually, the next phase is moving to um, a situation where people will hold value on the wallet and so on and so forth. And there is now a whole ecosystem, you know, both transferring money internationally, between countries, you know, there are corridors like, you know, the Burkina, Burkina Bois um, cocoa growers who go south to Ghana and to Cote d'Ivoire, and they send money back to Burkina Faso. And you can see that money um, route, as mm -hmm. it were, and it, it explodes sideways. There's, there's one to Lake Kampala, to Entebbe, and it, the fish comes out of the lake, it's sold, and you can see the money then goes to the petrol stations and so mm -hmm. on. And so you have these corridors. And so all of that is developing. And actually, it's very interesting. There's a quote in the book from Dario Cujo, who runs MFS Africa, who is one of, this, one of the companies within this financial ecosystem. And he was saying that you know, if you think about it, you know, the the potential African customer used to be a woman with two types of firewood on her head by the side of the road. And nowadays, it's it, that same woman will be, in a, will be in a city somewhere, will be watching football, we're using Facebook. And as that digital generation moves through, all sorts of magic will happen because they, they don't feel remotely uncomfortable. Mm. You know, the presidents all have to be advised on how to use social media. I, I, I live long in the day that we may eventually have a, a president of an African country who is 40 or 50 rather than 60 to 80, mm -hmm. who actually knows this stuff because he used it, she used it when they were young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, the president of Rwanda seems to be fairly uh, tech savvy. What are your views on him? Um, yeah. It's a strange country mm -hmm. and um, it's a small country and he has 
managed to do all sorts of things quite interestingly with technology. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I, my, I, my slight hesitation is that his ability to um, assassinate his opponents <laughs> always causes me some cause for concern. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's, uh, let's not delve too deeply into that one. Um, Russell, you've traveled extensively on the continent. Yeah. Is there a particular market that you have an affinity for? And if so, why? I think there's, uh, in terms of the Anglophone countries, there's two countries I always come back to for slightly different reasons. Mm -hmm. One is Nigeria, because there's always fantastic energy there. And it's completely uh, unpredictable mm. as to where that, an that energy will go. And the real, the tragedy of it is you have such bright and talented people there and the structures, the political structures, and sometimes the commercial structures mean that those people are not able to fulfill their full potential. So that's Nigeria. Kenya is really interesting. Again, because it's, it has this sort of mix of cultures in Nairobi and it has managed to, in a sense, punch above its weight consistently. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's taken and run with the phrase Silicon Savannah, which is a bit of an oversell, but actually it's a good shorthand. And it's always a pleasure to be there because somebody is always mm. doing something interesting there. Mm. Francophone Africa is much harder because um, the culture is very different and it has taken them a while to get, you know, startups going in quite the same way. It is now happening and there's some quite impressive startups there. But, yeah, I mean, it's... You have to understand, I suppose, about Africa is, I don't have to tell you this, but you, you know, some of your listeners may, may uh, viewers may have to understand it, is it many, many countries. and you, uh, Vastly different. Vastly different. Mm. And, you know, kind of, uh, one can be very, very different from the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, you dedicate a section of your book to corruption. Yes. Um, why, 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 why did you do that? How does corruption manifest in telecoms in Africa, and what are the implications of it? I think a thread throughout the book is, yes, it's about technology, but it's about that thing I was speaking about earlier of how it beds into everyday life. And if you don't talk about corruption, then it's very, very hard to understand actually why certain things happen. Mm -hmm. And we are looking at what you might call patronage capitalism. So I was speaking to somebody the other couple of days ago down at AfricaCom in, in Cape Town, who was saying, well, you know, in this particular country, unless you're a friend of the president, you don't do business. And that means that the private sector can't really operate as it should do. It means that the friends of the president are in place, mm -hmm. earn the money from, are the local shareholders. And the net result of that is you don't get all the good things. Mm -hmm. So that's really why I wanted to cover it. The other thing, too, is that if you are a startup, and that's how the world works, it's quite difficult to then get into bigger business, as it were, because actually somebody is standing there saying, um, I should have a local shareholding in this. Mm -hmm. And I think startup, startups are quite interesting because they provide the energy and the ability to provide some very small way of changing that kind of patronage capitalism. Mm. It's the sort of thing where the president you know, make sure that his friend gets the, I don't know, the, the dealership for a sure. particular car and there's only one dealership in the country. Right. So breaking that down, and I think startups do that. Is that a problem that's endemic across the continent? Are there some markets that are getting it right? 
I think some, I think there's elements of it in all the countries, but some countries it's sort of easier to negotiate than others. Mm -hmm. You know, some are, um, you know, Nigeria is just so big, it's hard to fix everything. Yes. And, but on the other hand, you know, there's always somebody looking to do so. Uh, Kenya, you know, the doors are easier to push open. Mm. Um, here in all sorts of ways, you know, do we, South Africans understandably are very critical of their country and, you know, how it's run and all the rest of it. But actually there are opportunities here in a way that, you know, uh, would go begging elsewhere. Interesting. Um, so, you know, yeah, there are countries where it's, it's less of a dead hand. Let's look to the future. Right. And where we're going. Uh, there's a lot of investment happening. I'm amazed at how much money is flowing into data center infrastructure at the moment. Yeah. Especially here in South Africa, but also elsewhere on the continent. Six billion dollars. Astonishing. Announced. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So. Undersea cables as well. Yeah. Equiana. We've got yeah. the, uh, two Africa cable coming sometime, I think, in 2024. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of money being spent on infrastructure. Um, 5G is just starting to be rolled out in some African markets, including here in South Africa. Where is this going, Russell? I mean, this, this incredible investment that's happening must lead to something. But what is that something? I was very struck being in AfricaCom this week in Cape Town about the way that people are reinventing themselves. It, they've been trying for the best part of 10 years, but yeah. they, they finally seem to have got to the point where they know if they don't do it, something bad will happen mm. to them. So you have both MTN and Vodacom talking about going from being a telco to being a techco. It's, it's uh, you know, you use any words you like. You have people reinventing the buying and selling of um, connectivity. You used to be able to sell to enterprises very, very expensive bandwidth. By the time those two cables arrive, you know, enterprise bandwidth will become a commodity. So you have people automating the process of buying bandwidth. You know, I've bought, uh, you know, I've uh, gone out and asked for quotes for bandwidth for clients at various points. And it was a gruesome process. Mm -hmm. You know, it sometimes took three to six months to get mm -hmm. a quote. And if you can automate that, you know, there are people in the market who are doing that. And, you know, it, it, the, the data centers are like airports. Mm -hmm. You know, you can send your data to that data center and then it's on delivered there and you can connect into the world. And if actually data becomes, much as this is in other parts of the world, something you don't fear. And I think, you know, prices have come down here again as a result of the, if you will, the COVID test drill. Mm -hmm. If you don't fear the cost of data, then you will do all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And I think we're at the, again at the beginning of that moment. And it's very interesting, to, it will be very interesting to see what happens. The tough part is that actually all of the digital stuff is not high margin. So if you imagine you're going to get into digital and suddenly replace all your, what were quite high margin voice revenues and SMS revenues and all of those things, you're not going to. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the thing that isn't a mobile operator, you know, formerly called a mobile operator, um, I suspect will have much less, many less people working for it. Um, they will have a completely different skill set. Um, but the at the moment quite narrow, you know, maybe a quarter of the continent is actually using internet, that figure will get up to um, maybe 50% over 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Russell, unfortunately we are out of time, but uh, we, uh, we could continue this conversation all afternoon. So next time you're in Joburg, it's an open invitation. Please join us in the studio again and uh, 
let's have a longer conversation about some of these topics because there's so much to dig into and explore. But before you go, if anyone's not subscribed yet to Balancing Act's um, uh, newsletter, how, how do they go about doing that? Uh, you go on to www.balancingact-africa.com mm -hmm. and subscribe, subscribe there. And uh, if anyone's looking for your book, Africa 2.0, Inside a Continent's Communications Revolution, it's available in paperback and hardcover, I believe. And it's available in e-version on Amazon, which uh -huh. is the easy, one of the easiest ways Kindle. for South, South Africa, on Kindle. Mm -hmm. Or Take a Lot will sell you um, a, a hardback. Hardback. Yes. Fantastic. Great. Great. Well, I look forward to finishing the book. Um, it's pr probably on my uh, list. Well, it is on my list to read this December holiday. Good. Congratulations on, on, on the book and look forward to welcoming you in the studio again at some point. Russell Southwoods, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to Tech Central today. Pleasure to talk to you.